You know, as we read through the scriptures together this year, we're going to discover many things. But one thing that we will discover for sure as we pursue God this way is that he has a real heart for orphans. God loves the orphans. He says in uh, Exodus 22 and verse 22, You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. It's woven right into his law. Over in Hosea, the prophet, he says, In you, God, the orphans find mercy. God cares about orphans. You know, I went on the Internet this week and just typed in a simple Google search that said, How many orphans are there in the world? The result that I got back absolutely staggered me. According to the site that I went to, it said that the current estimates are 108 million orphans in the world today. 108 million. And then the the website went on to try to break that down into a number that was more comprehensible because it is so big. They said that if you were to have all the orphans in the world stand in a line holding hands... It would stretch around the globe more than two times. Approximately 1,700 orphans per mile. And if you were driving in a car at high speed down that line, you would go on and on for a month and you would see nothing but children standing there without parents. The number is staggering. Absolutely staggering. You know, the Christian church has always had a major ministry in this area to the people who are without hope. It represents the very heart of God. Historically, the church has always been in the forefront of dealing with those that are the disadvantaged. Christian schools, hospitals, orphanages, these, even the public school system, these are developments really that come out of a Christian worldview and reflect the heart of God. You can see it even in the early church. You don't have to go very far into the book of Acts to to see that they were most concerned, taking up collections regularly, to send for the support of those who were in desperate need. You know, as a fellowship, we've just begun to pursue some of these areas. Some international adoptions are beginning to happen. That's a good sign. Our benevolence ministries are just barely beginning to to look out and see what could be done to help. But there is way much more that we can do. And when we get on board with this kind of of a ministry, beloved, we will lock into the heart of God in one very serious area. God cares about the disadvantaged. Bring your Bibles up to uh, John 14.
Jesus is going to talk here about orphans. Now, he's not talking about those who have physically lost father and mother. He is speaking of spiritual orphans. But in this section, he's going to make some amazing promises to his disciples. He's going to be leaving them. In a matter of really just a few hours, he's going to be withdrawn from them through the cross. And what he wants to tell them here is that he's not going to leave them alone. He's not going to leave them as orphans. So we look at the passage together before us this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 24. And as we look at it together, there are at least two promises in this section. Two promises that Jesus gives the disciples and by extension to us. Two promises that really define and describe our relationship with Christ so that we will experience the fullness of knowing Him. Follow along as I read the text. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me because I live, you shall live also. In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Two promises in this section for us. The first one is in verses 18 to 19, and the promise is, is of the resurrection. He is promising us the resurrection. And what he says here is that we need to recognize that promise, a promise of the resurrection. He dives right into it here. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, he has spoken in this section here in the upper room about leaving them a, a number of times. Back at the end of, of chapter 13, he has told them, verse 33, I'm only with you a little while, and then you're not going to be able to see me. He says to uh, Don, verse 36, to Peter, that I'm going away and you can't follow. He says in the beginning of chapter 14, I go to the Father's house. He's talking about leaving them, and they've got at least that much of it down. They're very confused about a lot of what's going on, but one thing they do recognize that he is going to go away, and it's causing them no small measure of distress. Look again, chapter 14, verse 1, where he says, Let not your heart be troubled. They are disturbed. They are agitated. They are extremely concerned that Christ is going to leave them. And so he says to them here, Listen, I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. These are, these are strong words here. Translated, leave, you could translate it abandon. I'm not going to abandon you here. You're not going to be an orphan. Now, again, he's not talking about being without father or mother. It is true in that first century time that the, the term orphan was also applied to a disciple who's lost his master. You've got a disciple sort of wandering around without a master, and they would call them an orphan as well. 
And perhaps that's really what he's talking about here. Is I am your master and I am going away, but I'm not going to leave you like an orphan, like a spiritual orphan. I will come to you. I will come to you. The question that they have, and I think that you and I have as well, is when? When are you going to come to us? So you look at verse 19, he answers their question. After a little while, after a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. Because I live, you shall live also. After a little while, what is he talking about? Well, I think the answer to what he's talking about is wrapped up in the, in the leaving that he's talking about. He's going away to the cross. He's going to be crucified, right, in a little while. And then the world will behold him no more, he says. But then you will behold me. How do they see him? When do they see him? Just three days later, right? They see him Easter. And then they begin to see him from then on out through his post-resurrection appearances. A little while the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. You know, beloved, when you go through the... Um, the account of the New Testament, it, it is an interesting thing, that after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no record anywhere of him ever appearing to an unbeliever. He appears only to his own, with one notable exception. He appears on the Damascus Road to a man named Saul. But, of course, Saul immediately, what? Becomes one of his. It is interesting there, by the way, in that Acts account, because Saul hears his voice and the rest of his traveling companions, they just hear a sound and they see a light, but they don't see the risen Lord. After his resurrection, he says, the world will behold me no more. They won't see me anymore. You will, but they won't. And indeed, that's what the scriptural record tells us. And that's some comfort to them. But the comfort goes deeper than that. Look again closely at the verse. You will behold me. Because I live, you shall live also. He's giving them a promise here of resurrection. He's saying, because I will be resurrected, you will be resurrected also. That's his promise. It's a guarantee. Now, the question that comes to my mind is, well, what does he mean by this promise of a resurrection? What exactly is he promising them? And how will that be a comfort to them? The doctrine of the resurrection is nothing new for the Old Testament saints. They have a hope of the resurrection that stretches way back. I mean, you can read in the book of Hebrews... Hebrews 11, where it says that Abraham offered Isaac in hope of the resurrection. So way back to the patriarchs who know about the resurrection. Job himself said in Job 19, Yet in my flesh I will see the Lord. So from the earliest times, the people of God have, have had a hope to the resurrection. So what Jesus is telling them there can't be just that you're going to be resurrected someday. That's not a whole lot of comfort for them. In this situation anyway. They know about a resurrection. Daniel 12, verse 2 says there will be a resurrection. 
We could go back into John chapter 11 where Jesus says there to, to Mary that he'll be resurrected. Your brother will be resurrected. And she says, I know he will in the, in the resurrection at the end times. And he says, Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. So his promise here to them, again in verse 19, because I live, you shall live also, has got to be more than simply a resurrection out there someday. And I think that's where the power of the promise really comes. There is a resurrection, a here and now resurrection. Because I live, you, look at it, you shall live also. You will begin to live. I mean, after all, think about this. What good is a promise of eternal life someday when I'm dying today, right? When life is falling apart around me right now. When things are so hard, so difficult, so overwhelming that I think I'm going to sink and never come up again right now. Don't talk to me about out there someday. That's not helping me. I think he's giving them a present promise of resurrection. Not a wait and see, not a pie in the sky, by and by kind of thing. He's saying right now, because I live, you shall live also. Apostle Paul, commenting on the same thing, says that we can know him and the power of his resurrection. Now that's a promise. We can know him and the power of his resurrection. Jesus elsewhere in John 10 calls it the abundant life, right? I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. Is there a future resurrection? Absolutely. Clearly there is. And it is of immense comfort. But there's more. See, the promise of the resurrection is bigger than that. It's more comforting than that. It's more powerful than just You'll die and you'll lay in the ground for who knows how long and then eventually you'll come up again. There's a here and now aspect to it. There is a resurrection life. Now what is, according to the New Testament, the resurrection life? What, is it, what does it look like? Well, let me give you a couple of glimpses of it. Go with me over to uh, Hebrews Hebrews 9. We're jumping in the middle of a context here, but I, I just want to draw out one point that the writer of the Hebrews is making. You know, the book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, right? It's all about the, the, uh, the fact that the new covenant is better, it is superior to the old covenant. That the old covenant was full of shadows and rituals and, and glimpses forward. And that the new co covenant is all about fulfillment. And so here in Hebrews 9, take a look at verse 9, which touches on this issue of resurrection life here and now. 
Look at the end of the verse. It says, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Look ahead to verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What is He talking about? The writer of the Hebrews here is talking about having a conscience cleaned or cleansed by the Spirit applying the blood of Christ. He's talking about resurrection life. Before Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross, even believers, even the Old Testament believers knew that deep down inside they were defiled. They would come and by faith and they would present their animal sacrifices over and over and over again. What kind of life is that, by the way? Where you continually come and you have to present another life for your own and it's slaughtered and at the end of the day when you walk away, you know, you know deep down inside that it's still not, you're still not right with God that there's still this sense of defilement. Your conscience still continues to accuse you and tell you you're polluted, you're defiled. The Old Testament sacrifice could not permanently remove that pollution. That's what the writer says here in verse 9. It cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. He knew internally that he would have to be back again next week. And offer another one. And then after that, another one. And then after that, another one. Their conscience reminded them continually. But now the writer says that through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, right? The guilt, the pollution, the defilement has been removed once and for all. Beloved, that is resurrection life. That is being freed from the guilt of your sin. It's gone. When Jesus Christ looks at you, he, or excuse me, when God the Father looks at you, He sees the blood of Jesus Christ and He is well pleased. He loves you. His arms are open wide to embrace you and pull you in. There is no sense in which He is saying, stay back, you're still tainted. I mean, we read earlier about the sons of Aaron, right? And they come into the presence of the Lord and something goes wrong there and he snuffs them out and there's that sense of dread that you cannot come near to this God. He is so holy and you are so defiled. But now in Christ we enter boldly into the presence of God Almighty. There is no sense in which that we carry within us a continuing defilement. Our conscience no longer accuses. It is clean. That's resurrection life. That's not just someday He'll bring me up out of the ground. That's today I'm alive in Christ. That's resurrection life. I'll give you another example. Go back with me to uh, Romans chapter 6.
Romans chapter 6, verse 5, Paul says, For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him and that our body of sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What in the world is Paul saying there? Well, in its most simple terms, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that in Christ Jesus, in His resurrection life, you have resurrection life and the hold of sin upon you has been broken. (coughs) That's resurrection life. Not that your sins are forgiven. Yes, that is true. But the power of sin has been broken. You do not have to sin. That's resurrection life. Beloved, that's really living. That's what it means to live. Is to know that you do not have to live under that taskmaster anymore. You do not have to serve him. You are able to not sin. That's resurrection life. I mean, Paul says it this way over in 1 Corinthians. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Temptation, you bet. It's going to come. And what comes to you is no different than what comes to everyone else. But you, if you have united to Jesus Christ by faith, you have resurrection life. The power of sin in your soul has been broken and you can say no. You can say no. I will not do this. That's living. That's what it means to live. That's what it means to have resurrection life. Free from the bondage to guilt, free from the enslavement to sin. It's like a leper who is defiled, who knows that his disease is is there within him and it's constantly corroding and corrupting him. And with one touch of the master's hand, he's healed. The disease is gone. It's broken. You're no longer a leper. It's free. This is resurrection life. Look again to John 14. The first promise that Jesus gives them and by extension gives to us. A promise that that really defines and describes our relationship with Him is that Because I live, you shall live also. You have resurrection life. You have resurrection life. Second. So he has to realize the promise of relationship. 
Not only do you have resurrection life, but you have relationship. Verse 20. In that day, you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In that day. What day, Jesus? I think it begins certainly at the day of his resurrection, and that ushers in the beginning of this new day. Jesus is there with his disciples off and on and for 40 days in these resurrection appearances, and then we arrive at Pentecost, right? And there at Pentecost comes the Spirit. Look just back up contextually. In verses 16 and 17, it says, I I will ask the Father, He will give you another paraclete, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, right? Because it does not behold Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. He's talking ultimately here about Pentecost. And in that day, the day of the Spirit that begins with the resurrection, you will know I am in the Father, you in me, I in you. I mean, formerly they walked together on a physical plane, disciples and master. They ate together. They did ministry together. They talked together. They walked together. Now Jesus is living them, or leaving them, rather. But he's not leaving them orphans, he says. He's sending the Spirit, but also he, as sort of an advancement here of progress of dogma right in this same section. He says, not just am I sending you the Spirit, but I myself am going to take up residence within you. This is relationship. It's a relationship at a new level, at a deeper level, at a more profound level. I am in you. I will be in you. And this indwelling ministry of Christ is available not just to them. But notice in verse 21, it's available to all who love Him and keep His commandments. It's not just that He will be with His eleven in a new and special relationship. He will be with us. All who love Him and keep His commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? We love the disciples because they ask all the questions that we would like to ask if we were there because we're not sure what's going on either. This, by the way, is the fourth question of this particular series. Now, Judas, and of course, John makes you makes it plain so we don't misunderstand. It's not Iscariot because he's already been dismissed earlier in the evening. It's this new Judas, which is kind of a mystery disciple, by the way. We don't really know very much about him. If you compare the disciple lists, it may be that he is, uh, is Thaddeus. In the list over in Matthew 10, that's the possibility. According to uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, Ancient Tradition, 
says that he was crucified in Macedonia in AD 72, but we don't really know much about this Judas. But he jumps in here and he asks a question. And he, he, say, he, he notices or he, or he interprets what Jesus says in verse 21, that he will disclose himself to them, but the world is not going to see him any longer, verse 19. And he says, what's going on here, Lord? I mean, you're Messiah, right? Yes, okay. My understanding of Messiah is that the, he will be glorified before the whole world. The whole world will see him. So why is it now you're saying that the world's not going to see you anymore? Wait a minute, I thought you were Messiah, right? Yes, I am. I'm confused. I'm confused, he says. Well, he's actually right that Messiah will be revealed to the whole world. What he misses is the timing of it all. He's looking for the immediate disclosure of Messiah to all of the world. And what Jesus is, is hinting at here is that there's a, going to be a period of time in which Messiah is not available to the world. And then he will come in his glory. We know He will come. Scriptures are clear in many places. He will come. He will establish His kingdom. But in between, there's this time where the world just can't see Him anymore. He's gone. So Judas, he's thinking on one plane, and he, he's kind of missing the point. So Jesus is going to answer him. Verse 23. But when He answers him, He doesn't really take up his question fully and answer it, he, he kind of moves beyond his question to the real heart of the issue. And Jesus does those sort of things often, right? People come and they ask him a question and he answers their question. And frequently the answer he gives is not exactly the question that they asked. Well, it's kind of what he's doing here. Look at how he answers and says to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him, make our abode with him. He who doesn't love me does not keep my words. Now Jesus answers his question about why aren't you going to show yourself to the world is what he says is because the world has no intimacy with me, has no relationship with me. They don't love me. And the way I know they don't love me is they don't keep my word, and so they're not going to see me. But if you love me and keep my word, you will see me. That's kind of his answer here. Judas is fundamentally correct in assuming a messianic display of glory. What his error is, is in the timing of it all. He misses the timing. And what Jesus is saying here in verses 23, 24, and really up in verse 21 even, is that between now, when I'm leaving you, and then when I will come in a magnificent display of glory is this period of time when I will be in a new relationship with my followers. A new relationship. A relationship that is characterized by indwelling. All right, verse 20, I will be in you. Verse 23, the Father and, and I will come and will make our abode with you. There's, a, there's this new time frame here called the period of the indwelling. Or at least that's what I'm calling it. And it's fascinating here. Look again, verse 17, the end. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And notice that he says, the Spirit will be in you. Do you see that? The end of verse 17. Then in the end of verse 20, it says, I will be in you. And then in, in uh, verse 23, it says, we, that is the Father and I, will make our abode with you. 
Now, that's pretty fascinating if you kind of pull all that together because what that says to me is that the triune God will now take residence within his own people. Now, that is an amazing promise of relationship. Think with me. In the Old Testament, God is said to dwell among his people, right? In a tabernacle, in the desert, in a tent. He will dwell among them. A frequent Old Testament question that people ask is that who may dwell in the presence of God? And that reveals the aspirations of the people of God to want to be with him. But never in the Old Testament is God said to dwell in someone individually. This is an incredible advancement of relationship. Jesus is saying that the triune God will now reside within his people. What was it like? To be a follower of Yahweh before this? Well, you could only come so close. If you were a child, you could only come this close. And then if you were a woman, you could, you could come a little closer. And then if you were an Israelite man, you could come a little closer still. And if you were a priest, you could come a, a little bit closer still. But only one could come into the presence of God, and, and him only one time a year. And they would tie a rope around his ankle in case he messed up. And the same thing happened to him that happened to Nadab and Abihu. And then they would drag out his incinerated corpse. Access to God was sealed with a veil made of goat's hair. A hand breadth thick. That's the width of my hand. That's a four to five inches thick. You would come to God through ritual, through shadow, through ceremony. He was fearful. It was terrifying. He was remote. Now he's going to live within you. He's going to live within you. Now that is a promise. That's a promise that ought to excite you. It is the coming of the new covenant. Right? I will write my law on their hearts. No longer on tablets of stone. It will now be written on their hearts. And I will dwell in them. Not amongst them, but in them. No longer do they have to proceed to Jerusalem at certain select times of the year to offer the appropriate sacrifice and ritual. Now Jesus says that we worship in spirit and in truth, right? That we not in Jerusalem and not on Gerizim, but anywhere you can come to God the Father in spirit and truth through the blood of Jesus Christ and have bold access into the throne room. You now have a relationship that the Old Testament saint could only wish for. When does this happen? At Pentecost. The answer is at Pentecost. You see, far from leaving them as orphans, Jesus gives them way much more 
Who would want the physical presence of Jesus with me when I can have the triune God in me? You know, there are many believers that are on a quest for God. People kind of run around here, there, everywhere. They're looking for God. I'm talking about believers. But see, they're looking in all the wrong places. They're kind of like the, the lady with the glasses on top of her head, right? She can't remember where she left them. I know that's not happened to any of you, but... He's right there in you. You have that kind of relationship. He's in you. Convicting you of sin and righteousness. Assuring you of your salvation. Giving you peace that passes understanding. Who would want to go back? Who would want to go back? The mechanism, by the way, of this disclosure of the indwelling or or the mechanism by which Jesus uh, reveals or discloses his indwelling is, I believe, the Scriptures. Go through this passage. You notice in verse 21, he talks about commandments. You look over to verse 23, he talks about his word. Look at verse 24, he talks about the Father's word. The Father's Word, My Word, Commandments. I think in context here, when you pull it all together, what you're really talking about is the Word of God, the Scriptures. So when Jesus says that we, we will dis- or I will disclose myself to Him, verse 21, I think what He's talking about is that He will disclose ourselves through, or Himself to us through the Word of God. He indwells us. That is a, that is a metaphysical reality. But the way we come to see the fullness of that indwelling is through the Word of God. It's through the Word of God. As we lovingly pursue Him through the Word of God, we see Him more and more and more. You want to see more of Jesus? This is where you'll find Him. This is where you'll get to know Him. This is where your love for Him will grow. The more you pursue Him, the more you will find Him. And the more you abandon the pursuit, the more remote He will become to you. When my kids were young, we had a children's book called Where's Waldo? I think that was the name of it. It was these goofy pictures of this guy with this multi-striped hat, right? You had to find them. There were all these fake ones everywhere. I mean, you had to look to find the real one. And my kids loved that kind of stuff. So you would get good at training your eyes to, you know, find Waldo in the picture. Well, the more practice, the better you got. So if I can use that as, a, as an analogy here, the more practice you get at looking for Christ in the Scriptures, the better you'll get at finding Him. You'll see Him everywhere. You will read through the Old Testament, beloved, and you you won't be able to help yourself. You'll see Jesus everywhere. All over the pages of Leviticus is Jesus Christ. 
And that makes it a sweet book to read. It makes it sweet. What does it mean here in verse 21 to have His commands and keep them? Well, if there's any difference at all, it perhaps is that to, to have them is to, to know them and to agree with them, and then to keep them is to obey them. The great Augustine said it this way. He said, one who has them orally and keeps them morally. I like that. I like it because it rhymes. It's knowing the Word of God and doing it. I mean, we saw a whole bunch of kids lined up here earlier, didn't we? And what are the, what's going on there? We're plowing the Word of God into their hearts and minds so that they know it. The next step is they need to do it. They need to do it. It is a terrible, terrible mistake to think that you can enjoy the fullness of a relationship with Jesus Christ without keeping His commandments. The fullness of Christ comes for those who are in active obedience to His Word. Sure, um, relationship kind of dry. Got a little bit remote. Hard to find. You read the Bible, it's just words on a page. doesn't really seem to do much for you. How's your obedience? The place to go is to check your obedience. Are you walking with Christ? Are you keeping His commandments? When you fall, are you implementing 1 John 1, 9? Confessing your sin? Will He cleanse you? Restore the broken fellowship there? God is passionately in love with those whom He indwells. He wants nothing more than to reveal the fullness of Himself to you through His Word. If you will but come and take it up. If you will just but come and take it up. A number of years ago, one of our children had disobeyed. And uh, that had brought a confrontation with Dad. And uh, they had incurred the, um, my displeasure. And uh, that brought the appropriate consequences, right? And so um, after that encounter, I'd gone outside out front to uh, wash the car. And I was out washing the car. And pretty soon I heard the front door open. And I looked and I saw a pair of feet you know, through the bushes, coming out through the front door. And I continued to wash the car, and a short time later, the, they came over to me, and, and they said, Dad, can I help you wash the car? And I said, sure, grab a bucket. They were restoring themselves to me. Their sin had been dealt with. The consequence had come. Forgiveness had been extended, but there was still a need to restore the relationship. And they knew that the way to restore the relationship was to come out and to just kind of come alongside me and, and things would be okay. And, and so they did. And we talked no more of the offense. It was gone. It had been dealt with. And we had a fun time together, washing the car and spraying each other with the hose. 
If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, yet you still feel like you're going it alone. If you still feel like there's an a onslaught of sin and temptation, there's the joy of your walk is just not there. And Jesus Christ has good news for you. He has promised you the resurrection life here and now. He said that your guilt of your defiled conscience is gone. The power of sin in your life has been broken. The triune God now indwells you and He wants to disclose Himself to you fully through His Word. All you need to do is come outside the house and help Him wash the car. Let's pray. Our Father God, I thank you for the gift of salvation through the shed blood of Christ. I thank you that it is all of grace and none of works. For if it had any measure of human effort, it would be corrupt and worthless. I thank you that you have not just given us salvation by and by, uh, Release from the eternal consequences of our sin, but you have given us resurrection life and you've given it to us right now. Our Father, I confess we live like fools. We have all the riches of Christ at our fingertips and we continue to eat crumbs. Father, draw us back to yourselves. Break through the stupidity that blinds our hearts and minds. Help us to embrace the fullness of life in Christ and to know the peace that passes all understanding. We pray these things in the name of that one who is exalted above every other name, Jesus Christ our Lord.